Hi, welcome to the coffee celebration. I'm your host, Wendy Steinberg. And today we have a phenomenal human who's going to blow your mind. Um, he played basketball for the Division One at the Citadel. He did corporate. Um, he was in the corporate world. He was a police officer. There's so much going on here. I cannot wait to talk to him. But first, I just want to know, um, like, where did you grow up? You know, how did you get to the Citadel? You know what I mean? Well, Wendy, thanks for, for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Uh, yeah, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. I'm the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me or from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And so it was, I'm not going to say it was easy, but it was easier to get to the Citadel because I went there on a basketball scholarship. Um, when I graduated from college, I moved home to find a job. Um, I'm really going to date myself now, but this is long before the internet was available to help, right. yeah, yeah. to help people find employment. Um, fortunately, as you mentioned, I found that first job. It was in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain, in their marketing department. That was the good news. The bad news was I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as they helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Uh, professionally, like I said, started out at Wendy's. Then I shifted and moved to hospital administration. And then I made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And one of the things I did in law enforcement was I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. After my law enforcement career, I started a school security consulting business, coached girls high school basketball when we lived in Texas. But for the last 11 years now, I've been battling a rare form of cancer, a rare form of melanoma. And then I guess just finally, my wife and I have been married for about 30 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. That's incredible. Oh, my gosh, you're six foot eight. Um, so when this time of year happens, you know, that um, the Division One schools, I work at Xavier. We're number three, right? And so what is it like being in that? What is it? Have you ever made it to the final four? I mean, what is playing basketball in that? I want to say contest, but it's not. It's like you only get one shot. What is it like? I have to know. Yeah, let, let, I guess let me back up a minute. So you're at Xavier University? Yeah. So I was a police officer in Cincinnati, and my beat included Xavier uh, University. I uh, had a lot of interaction with the officers out there and stuff like that. So kind of talk about a small world. Been, been to Xavier many times. Um, in terms of basketball, I mean, I, I am I'm old enough that when I played college basketball, it was entirely different than it is today. There was no three-point line like there is today. There was no shot clock in college basketball. Uh, no, we never made it to the Final Four. We never even actually made it to the, the dance, you know, to, to the mm -hmm. March Madness. Because at the time, there were only 32 teams that were allowed oh, in that. You know, it's not the whatever, 64, 68, yeah. whatever, you know, when they start with the playing game. So they've doubled the number of teams from when I was playing. But I had a great opportunity. I, I, I mean, it was a it was a way to get an education. Uh, both my brothers and I are, are athletes. I have one brother that was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame. I had another brother who was a... Um, 
a college basketball All-American and, and also was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers and the National Basketball Association. So we were all athletes and we all went to college, you know, to play sports and, and we got scholarships, which was great for my my parents, you know, yeah. who didn't have to pay for it. But it, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, I played against Michael Jordan when Michael Jordan was a freshman. Uh, I was a senior. Um, that was 1982. That was the year North Carolina won the national championship. And then the following night, I played against North Carolina State and Jim Valvano, who the following year in 1983, they won the national championship. So oh in the course of one weekend, got to play against two national championship teams. So it was a lot of fun. That's amazing. Are your brothers as tall as you? Yeah, I, I'm 6'8". The one who pitched for Notre Dame is 6'7". The one who was drafted by the Cavaliers was 6'6". And then my dad was 6'5". So I used to joke that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, not a prayer's chance you were going to see anything that was going on, you know, in front of us. So. Absolutely. I'm 4'11", so I have to rush to the front. Oh, I hear you. I understand. Absolutely. So the college, the Citadel, right, it is a, a military-based college, is it not? It is. It is. Um, and what is it like going to a college structured like that? Yeah, at, at the time, when, again, you know, things things change, times change. When I went there, it was all male. There, there were no women. Uh, back in, I want to say, the, the 90s, they, uh, they admitted women and, and have for a number of years now. Um, so it, it was, it was like going to boot camp. You know, I mean, you know, you get there the first day, they shave your head, they give you the uniforms, you're standing at attention, you know, it's, it's Charleston, South Carolina in August. So it's, you know, hundred degrees and 90% humidity. And you got these little sand fleas that are biting you all over, you know, and stuff. So it, it, you, you had to condition your mind to, to survive that. I, I didn't do a very good job. I, I was not, nearly as resilient as I am now. But I mean, there was a point where I wanted to quit, where I wanted to to give up a full college scholarship just because I didn't think I could take it. And I remember I was literally walking over to the field house to tell the coaches like, you know what, I'm done. I'm 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 gonna go find someplace else to play. And I, I stopped by the the student union and to just to see if I had any mail. And I had a seven page handwritten letter from my father who basically said pull your head out of your butt is basically what he said to me. Yeah. I, I mean, literally it, it was, you know, you've called home seven times since you've been down there and not one time have you asked how anybody, you know, back at home is doing, you are so focused on you. You need to stop that. You need to figure out what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. I mean, literally by the end of the letter, I was in tears. I was like, I can't quit. There's, there's no way I can quit now. And so I, I kind of, you know, put on my big boy pants, so to speak, and okay. and realized, you know what, things in life are tough, and hopefully, I'm going to learn something here. And you know, four years later, ended up graduating in that. So, yeah. thank God for that letter from my father. Otherwise, who knows where yeah. my life is gone. So, did you major in marketing? Is that how you went into corporate with Wendy's? I actually majored in business administration, a little bit more general. I, I'll be honest with you, you know. As as a 17, 18 year old kid coming out of high school, I had I had no idea, you know, exactly what I wanted to do. I mean, my dad was like, you should major in business. So I majored in business. I mean, if I if I had to do it over again, I probably would have gone more, you know, a political science or an English route. I, I like the law. 
I, I did spend a couple couple years in law school and stuff like that. So I, you know, I, I you don't know as a kid, you know, you you kind of, well, I'll, I'll try this and see if it's for me. And if it's not, you can always, you're young, you can always back out and, and go down another rabbit hole and, and say, well, maybe that's more interesting or, or what did I learn? And I did, I learned a tremendous amount working for Wendy's and working in healthcare. But at the, I got to a point where I really felt my passion was to be in law enforcement. How long were you in Cincinnati as um, a, a police officer? So 1997 to um, like 2006, 2007, something like that. It was it was roughly eight to ten years, something like that. Yeah. How did you get to be a hostage negotiator? When I read that about you, I was just like, "How do you even do that? Are you handpicked? Like, are you trained in that? What happens?" Yeah. So uh, for those of, of your audience that don't know how a SWAT team is usually put together, there's usually two components. One are the is, is a tactical team. And those are the the officers, the men and the women who have, you know, the guns and, and all the toys and that kind of thing. And then there's the negotiators. And, and we work together and we train together and things like that. And I always say that if we did our job, if we did our job as negotiators, then the tactical team didn't get to use all their toys. And sometimes they didn't like that. that that's not true. That's, that's <laughs> but, you, you know, I mean, it it wasn't about trying to shoot people and kill people. It was really about trying to get people out safely and doing that the best way that we could. And so there was an opening on the on the negotiating team. And so I put in for it. And there was a physical fitness test. You had to, you know, run a mile and a half. You had to do push-ups, sit-ups. You had to meet with a psychologist. You had to take... Uh, psychological written exams. You had to meet with the administration. You had to meet with the team. And it was an all or nothing thing. I mean, everybody on the team had a vote. And if one person said, no, we don't want Terry on the team, then you didn't get on the team. So it had to be a unanimous decision because we worked very closely with each other. So you didn't want somebody that you couldn't get along with. So I was lucky enough to get into the team, to get onto the team. And the training is pretty much on the job training. We we do a lot of scenario-based training. We work with a psychologist who, you know, we will do a training and then we'll debrief. And the psychologist will be like, well, did, did you think maybe that person had schizophrenia and they were off their meds? And like, oh, no, I never thought about that. You know, so it's you you just you learn and you learn with experts. You know, you learn with the people who've been on for, you know, 10 or 12 years and with a psychologist who can tell you, you know, think about this or did you did you think about that or or maybe consider this on your on the next time so it's just it's a it's a building block process you you learn and the way we worked was there would be one person negotiating with the the person that was barricaded and then there would be another negotiator sitting right next to that person just listening to the conversation and then we'd have three or four maybe even five other negotiators doing what I used to call working the crowd. So we would, you know, we would be talking to their mother or their spouse or, you know, whoever their neighbor or what, you know, why are we here? What happened? What kicked this off? And so as the primary, you might get a note from the secondary that was listening that said, don't talk about his mother. Because what the crowd group found out was he had a big fight with his mother and he took a hostage and he barricaded himself. So you might get that note that says, hey, don't talk about his mother. So that's kind of how it was done. It was not just, well, we're trying to figure this out as we're going along. I mean, sometimes that was the case. We had no idea 
what set this person off or why we were there. We didn't, we didn't have any intel. We didn't have any yeah. intelligence to tell us that. And so we had to figure it out as we went. But a lot of times we did have kind of bits and pieces and we tried to put that together and use that to try to get the person out safely. Did you have anything in Cincinnati? Like, did you have to use your skill set in Cincinnati? I was here at the time. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, we you, you didn't hear much about it, I, you know, especially when after 9-11, we, we went to um, encrypted radios. So we had our own channel and we could talk and, you know, the media couldn't hear it and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you didn't you didn't know about a lot of the things that we did. Um, there was a there was a guy down. This is a funny story. It's, it's very atypical. But there was a, a guy down on the east end down near the river. Yeah. And um he had he had barricaded himself in the house with his wife. And I happened to be working that night. I was out in District One. And so I got there pretty quickly because I was in I was in a marked car. And I get there and I'm talking to the officers. And I'm like, what's the deal? It's like, well, he's drunk. He's barricaded himself in the house with his wife. I said, okay, do you have him on the phone? I said, yeah, we do. I said, well, let me talk to him. So we talked for about 10 minutes. And you never did this usually. I mean, it was hours before you talked about solutions, about coming out, about letting the hostages go. But I just had a feeling about this guy. So I kind of went with it. And I said to him, what would it take for you to come out? And there was this long pause. And then then he says to me, give me a beer. I said, if I gave you a beer, do I have your word that you would let your wife go and you would come out, you know, safely? He said, do I have your word I could drink it? I said, you have my word, you could drink it. I said, do I have your word, you'll let your wife go and you'll come out and put the gun down? He said, yeah. So I gave $5 to one of the uniform officers. I said, go down to the store and buy a beer. The tactical team put it on the front porch and I called them back. I said, your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out and you come out with your hands up. All of a sudden the front door flies open. Here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. We handcuffed him, let him drink his beer and off to the Hamilton County Justice Center he went. So, I mean, that was that was atypical. That was not the way it was. I'll give you a kind of a more, Please. it was actually kind of a tragic story, but it, it, it was a little bit different. So this was an individual who wanted to commit suicide and probably started about eight o'clock at night. He slit his wrist. Oh my God. And that, that didn't work. And so then he had the brilliant idea to turn the gas on his oven and stick his head in the oven, thinking that was going to do something. Well, that that didn't do anything either. And so then he called the family member and the family member was smart enough to call us. And so we had his house surrounded and I had him on the phone and we were talking and it's probably three or four o'clock in the morning now. And I honestly, I think he was just exhausted. I think he was, you know, he was so worn down just by the emotional part of this, not to mention, you know, slitting your wrist and doing all the other stuff. Well, he had a gun now. And so I had talked to him and he finally said, you know, Terry, I want to come out. I said, you know what? I'd love you to come out. I said, when you come out, I'll come down to the scene and we'll talk face to face. How how does that sound? He said, that sounds great. I said, but put the gun down and come out and just do what the officers tell you to do when you come out. Don't hang up the phone. Take the phone with you. Well, he hung up. He hung up the phone, which is not uncommon because we're, we're you know, when a conversation's over, we're kind of just used to you know, okay, the conversation's over. Hang up the phone. So I don't know, about 30 seconds later, one of the tactical officers came on the radio and said, we heard a gunshot. And I thought, you didn't. You shot yourself. He did shot himself in the head, but he shot himself at such an angle that the bullet entered underneath the skin, like at his temple area, 
went around his scalp and came out the other side. Never penetrated his scalp, never penetrated his brain. I mean, it was very bloody because it was a head injury and head injuries bleed more than a lot of other injuries. But in terms of seriousness, it really was not a serious injury. And he ended up going to the hospital and then was eventually got, gotten the psychological uh, right. help that he needed. But that, I mean, and you never heard about that because that was just something right. that, you know, we oh. don't. Oh my gosh. So then after you became a, uh, you were on the SWAT team as a, a mediator, you then built your own business after that? I did. My Actually, my wife was working for uh, Fifth Third, the, the, the bank. That's uh, my bank. Okay. In Cincinnati, <laughs> she was running their mutual funds. And she ended up losing her job. They downsized. And so she found a job in Houston. And so I had to to leave Cincinnati. And I started a school security consulting business. I worked with private independent schools around the United States to, you know, assess their physical security. What's, you know, can you get into the school? Is it locked and stuff like that? Write their policies and procedures and and train their staff. And so it was it was kind of nice because I could ramp up or down my business because it was my business. And then the other job I did was I coached girls high school basketball, which I really loved. I really enjoyed. And so during the off season, I could ramp up the business. And during the season, I could sort of back it off and not do as much work. So it, it, it was a great opportunity for me. So when <clears throat> when we hear on the news about school shooting, you have the background about um, creating a safe space within the building and without outside of the building. Um, do you think it's because of security that isn't tight enough in the building or outside of the building? Or is it just kids come with um, deadly weapons and it takes off that way? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think each each scenario is different. Um, I will tell you this. There are more guns in the United States than there are adults. And the average shelf life of a gun is about 400 years. So think about how old the United States is. I mean, we're, you know, 200 and I don't know, 60, 70 years old. I mean, and I mean, I have my, my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. I have his service revolver. I I have his the gun that he carried when he was a policeman. I you understand know, that. I get yeah. that. But but think about that. That was 1924. You know, it's 2023 now. I I mean that's that gun is a hundred years old. You yeah. know, and so yeah, I I you know I think guns are readily accessible. I think that's one thing. I, I think in a lot of ways, kids don't understand, uh, you know, and, and and I understand the media has to report on things, but I mean, it was kind of the same way with SWAT. If we had a SWAT call up and it got reported on the media, there was a very good chance that we would start a run of call ups, that somebody would do something else because they see, oh, look, that kid shot up that school and now they're on the news and they're a big deal. I want to be a big deal. So if I'm, I, you know, what can I do? Oh, I'll get a gun and I'll go to my school and I'll do that. I think one of the biggest things that we can do to help kids is to get to get into their lives. You know, it, it, one of the biggest things that can, can can control school shootings is if at least every kid in that school has at least one adult 
whether it's the lunch lady, whether it's a teacher, whether it's an administrator, whether it's a psychologist or a counselor, whatever, that has at least one adult in that school that 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 kid feels like they can talk to, you know, and and that person would know, oh, you know, that kid's feeling kind of down that like now, right now, I need to I need to watch them. I need I need to talk to their parents. I need to. And a lot of times the parents don't care, you know, and, and when you're in that environment, you don't have a, a good role model. You don't have a good mother or a good father that you know, cares about you and wants what's best for you. Well, you're where you spend most of your time at school. Can you find that individual or can those adults reach out to you and say, hey, look, John, I know you're having a tough time, but hey, I'm here for you. You know, if you want to talk, I'm, I'm if you do those kind of things, there'll be a lot less school shootings. It, it, it's if it was an easy, you know, an easy problem to solve, we would have solved it by now. There's yeah. there's just so much mental health, you know, regarding that there's so many access to guns. And and I'm not a big proponent of, you know, let's get rid of all the guns. They'll just find other way. I mean, England got rid of guns and now what people, people take knives and they stab people. So, you know, it's, it's not the guns, it's the mental health. It's the people we need to get these people, you know, help when, and, and that's the hard part. Where, where do you intervene? Do you do right now or do you wait a little while? Oh, wait a minute. We waited and that person got a gun and went to school. So it's if it was an easy problem to solve, we would have solved it by now. So when you started that business, what was the big thing that you did? Was it like those buttons that you press and you talk to like an intercom, locked doors, alarm systems? Like what was I mean, this is like the middle of the 2000s. Like what 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 were you selling, so to speak? I, I really was just saying, you know, do what you normally do. And and it was kind of funny at the time because I used to use this analogy. I said, you're mandated by state law, and, and every state has this. You're mandated by state law to have X number of fire drills in a school year. Mm-hmm. Nobody's died in a fire in a school in 70 years. Right. So you're but you've got to have, you know five fire drills during the school year because right. it's a state law. There's no law about, you know, doing an active shooting drill. And then there was, oh, we can't do that because it'll traumatize the kids. Really? You ever, you ever seen anybody burned alive? You, you, you don't think that's going to traumatize a kid, you know, if you have a fire in your school? But no, you're practicing like crazy for something that never happens. And yet you're not practicing at all for something that statistically is probably never going to happen to you. But at the same time, if it does, do your kids know what to do? And do your teachers know what to do? So it was just basically, again, having them understand, yeah, lock your doors, have somebody responsible going around checking, you know, have one entrance and one exit, have that covered. And, and, but that's the problem, you know, the lunch lady, you know, opens up the back door because it's hot in the kitchen and stuff like that. Well, yeah. somebody gets in that way. And so, so there's all kinds of things that it's, it's just not a perfect system. If there was, like I said, we would have solved this problem long ago. Yeah. So was it in this position that you found out you had cancer? Uh, actually I was, I was coaching basketball. It was, it was during basketball season. I had a callus break open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe. And initially, I didn't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment and went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a cyst in in there and I can cut it out. 
And he did. And he showed it to me. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I received the call from him. And as I said, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on. Yeah. In all honesty, the more frightened I was becoming until finally he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have an incredibly rare form of melanoma. And most people think of melanoma as too much exposure right. to the sun and you know it affects the melon, the pigment in your skin. This has nothing to do with that. This is a rare form that appears on the bottom of your feet or the palms of your hands. And because of that, he recommended I go to MD Anderson Cancer Center, probably the best cancer center, certainly in the United States, maybe in the world, to be treated. And so that started the saga of surgeries and medication and all that kind of stuff. Oh, my gosh. So you did chemo, radiation, all of that? No, I didn't. Actually, I, I started, uh, they took out the tumor on the bottom of my foot. They took out all the lymph nodes in my groin. Uh-huh. And because at the time, melanoma was pretty much a death sentence. They did not have anything that they could give me for it. So my doctor put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon just to try to keep the the disease from coming back. The side effects of the interferon were that it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. And that wasn't a cure. That was, as my oncologist said, we're just trying to kick the can down the road, you know, to to buy you more time. Five years of interferon became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a body temperature of 108 degrees, which is usually not compatible with being alive. I was literally packed in ice and given this special medication to try to get my temperature down. I did survive that, obviously but I had to stop taking the interferon and almost immediately after stopping the drug, the cancer came back in the exact same spot on my foot where it had presented five years earlier. That necessitated the amputation of my foot in 2018. Cancer worked its way up my leg into my shin, two more surgeries in 2019. And then finally in 2020, right in the middle of the COVID pandemic, an undiagnosed tumor kind of in my ankle area grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse during the COVID pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee. And I found out I had tumors in my lungs, which I'm still being treated for. And I know this sounds dark and ugly, and it certainly has been, but I'll tell you real quickly, two things I've learned. Absolutely. Number one, I don't think you really know yourself until you've been tested by some form of adversity in your life. And number two, I think cancer has made me a better human being. Yeah. Wow. And was this um, how you decided to write your book was from this experience? Yeah. Yeah. The, the book was really born out of two conversations I had. One was with a former player that I had coached in high school who had moved to Colorado where my wife and I live with her fiance. And the four of us had dinner one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close now and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she said, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? 
I said, I have absolutely no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth, using your unique gifts and talents and living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then I had a young man um, on social media in college who reached out to me and asked me what I thought were the most important things he should learn to not just be successful in his job or in business, but to be successful in life. And I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. Those are incredibly important. But I wanted to see if I could go deeper with him. So I spent some time writing notes and eventually had kind of these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I stepped back and I was like, you know, I got a life story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates that principle. So literally during the three to four month period, that I was healing after I had my leg amputated. And before I started chemo for the tumors in my lungs, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how the book came to be. That's amazing. Do you go in public speak? Do people hire you to come? I, I do uh, now. I mean, I, I made the, the brilliant business decision to start a motivational speaking business right as COVID hit. So, you know, nobody was doing anything virtual or in person. (laughs) So I I had to have, you know, like so many other businesses, you know, how do you retool? How do you find another way to deliver your service? And somebody reached out to me and said, you know, would you like to be a guest on my podcast? And my response to them was, what's a podcast? (laughs) It was. I was like, I have no idea what what you're talking about. And he explained it to me. And I said, yeah. Yeah, sure. I'll try that. You know, I'll give it a whirl. And I, I remember I had I had posted notes all around the camera, you know, and they would ask me a question and, and I would like lean in and read a posted note, you know, for the answer. I, I was I don't know if I'm any better now, but I was terrible. You know, I, I, I didn't have good stories. I didn't. Have, I was just I was terrible. And but you you learn and you get better and you develop. And, and now I've been probably a guest on over 600 different podcasts around the world and that. And so it's, it was just a different way for me to deliver my message. And now that things are opening up now, I am doing more speaking engagements, both in person and virtual. That's amazing. What are the, so I'm from Colorado. Um, Are you currently living there? I am. What part of Colorado are you in? Uh, In Denver. Okay. I grew up in Aurora. um, Oh, yeah. Outside of Denver. So, um, love it. No, it's great. It's great. I'm so glad. I mean, that's where the University of Colorado Hospital, when I go for treatment, it's in Aurora. So absolutely know that very well. So you're you're just breathing in my mountain air and drinking my clean water. That's great. Um, I'm not jealous. Okay. Um, (laughs) So, okay. This has really, I mean, I don't even know how you keep going. Like I'm listening to you. And I I don't know how you would just, you've had so much, like the amputations, that medicine, the reversed, um, I guess, how it shot your body temperature up. I mean, did you just think, kind of like when you were in college and basketball, like, I just can't do this? Like, where was that tenacity coming from and that persistence? Because... I know myself, I mean, you said you learn about yourself, but like, personally, I'm like, I don't have a support system. 
And I just don't know like how I would survive something that you did. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't purport to have all the answers. I, I, I think one of the things that I learned from playing for me, it was team sports. I think whatever team you're part of, whether, you know, it's a family or your mm -hmm. colleagues or whatever it ends up being. But one of the things I learned from team sports was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. And, and I think you realize, at least on a team pretty quickly, that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, your parents down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. And so I am on a, a clinical trial drug now okay. that more than likely is not going to save my life. Uh, it, has, it has kept my tumors stable, but they're still there. So it's probably not going to save my life, but it may save the life of somebody five years from now, 10 years from now, based on the data that the doctors are gleaning from my blood tests and my scans and things like that. So that for me is being part of something that's bigger than me. And yes. that helps me to go on that it that it's not it's not all about me you know that it, that it's, it's it's maybe my purpose is to put as much goodness as much positivity as much motivation back into the world as i possibly can with whatever time i have left there have certainly been times I, I mean when i was on the interferon for five years i always said there's a difference between living and not dying and i really felt i was kind of in that not dying mode you know i really wasn't living i wasn't i was just trying to survive from day to day and doing that for five years. And I remember there was a point where I, I have a fairly strong faith life where I was like, look, God, th this isn't living. So just, just get me out of here. Just take me. And, you know, I, I was not contemplating suicide, but I was certainly like, look, I, I'm, I'm not productive. I'm not, I'm not doing anything. I'm not giving anything. I'm just, I'm sucking. I'm taking, I'm, I'm, you know, from, from everybody, from my wife, from my daughter, from the people that are helping me, just take me out of this. Well, obviously you didn't. But he obviously, I think, gave me the strength to keep going. You know, and, and sometimes I used to talk about winning the day. Literally, yeah. when I was on interference, sometimes winning the day was getting out of bed and walking to the couch. I yeah. mean, and people are like, oh, that's no big deal. When you're that sick, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a big deal. It is. You know? And so you, you kind of have to balance with, you know, what you want with what you're able to do. But but we're able we are so able to do more than we think. And I'll, I'll give you a quick story. Please. So 1950, there was a professor at Johns Hopkins University who did a very simple experiment with rats. He took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water before it sank and drowned. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as the rat was getting ready to drown, he would reach in, grab it, pull it out, dry it off, let it rest for a while. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in the exact same tank of water. Okay. The second time around, those rats, on average, treaded water for 60 hours. So think about no. it. Yeah, 15 minutes. 15 minutes. I'm just not going to fail. I'm going to die. The second time around, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives that we have to believe, maybe not today, maybe not this week, maybe not even this year, but at some point in time, our life will get better. And the second thing it taught me was just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. We quit, we give up long before our physical body does. 
because we can't control our mind. You know, our if you know when you're in pain, when you don't feel good, your mind takes over and it plays. You know, the demons you know kick in. If you can control your mind at the beginning of that pain and say, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you're not ruling me. I'm ruling you." If you can do that, now I'm not saying it's easy. It, it, yeah. It's hard, but if you can do that, then like I said, you can do so much more than you ever thought you could. Uh, that's so inspirational. So um, where can we find your book? Is it on Amazon? Do you just sell them directly? How does that work? It, it is on Amazon. It's on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Apple iBooks, wherever you get your book online, you uh-huh. can get Sustainable Excellence. Uh, I have a, a a blog every day. I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought usually comes a question. But on the blog, you can also get access to the book through Amazon as well. But anywhere you get a book online, you can get Sustainable Excellence. Amazing. Amazing. I, I want to thank you for the 45 minutes you've given me. I am going to follow you. I want to see how your life Uh, just expands in that kindness you talked about, in that generosity you spoke of. And um, you were your pure inspiration, because a lot of times people do give up. And you've shown that you can move forward, you can live with something that you're not necessarily sure what's going to happen. But yeah, that's amazing. Really, I'm so glad you found me because everything that you said kind of resonated with me at some point in my life. Just I'm ta- you're talking and I'm like, I, sh- I should have contacted him about that years ago. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, finding my purpose, making sure that I contribute. And I'm, I'm a God's girl too. So like, I really have my faith. And um, I think that that is also something that grounds us when um, we're in a situation that we really aren't sure how it's going to work out. So I agree. I agree. It's all, you know, I remember my oncologist showed me my, my CAT scan when I had the two, you know, these big tumors in my lungs that fluid all around the pleural spaces uh, on the outside of my lungs. And and I, I have no medical background, so I don't know how to read a CAT scan, but you know, I was kind of like, well, that doesn't look like it's supposed to be there, you know, kind of <laughs> thing. And I, I remember saying to him, how was I alive? Yeah. And he kind of smiled and shook his head and said, I, I don't know, because you shouldn't have been, Wh- which said to me that God's not done with me. You know, when I die, where I die, how I die, way above my pay grade. Don't spend a lot of time worrying about the dying part. Spend right. more time worrying about the living part. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yay. Thank you so much. Oh, my God, Terry. I, I want to see everything that you do from here. I am. Is there a way to follow you on your social media? Yeah, I, I, if you go to motivationalcheck.com, I have all my social media links, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, YouTube, all that stuff is, is up there. Perfect, because I could use morning motivation every single day. Super. That Thank would be great. You so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on, Wendy. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you.